This evening we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 of the epistle of Jude. Jude, verses 12 and 13. And we'll begin by asking, about whom is the writer speaking? Art? How about the uh, certain men introduced in verse 4? Okay, and how have we labeled that? Verse 4 was certain men. Yes, but how have we labeled them besides certain men? Uh, dreamers. True. Anything else? Subjects. Pardon? Subjects. Who's their own bodies? <laughs> they are the intruders. They are the ones that have invaded or subverted this community. And you remember in our original outline, we labeled them in an alliterative fashion because the apostles appear at the end of this epistle. We labeled them the apostates. These are the apostate intruders. And what is he doing in these two verses? How would you describe what he is writing in these two verses? A charge against them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Describing their character. He's characterizing them, is he not? And actually giving us a further characterization of these intruders. <clears throat> This characterization, of course, is a personality profile. He's talking about their personalities, uh, how they perceive themselves, and how they project that personality perception upon others, particularly upon this community. And in these two verses, he's going to pile up his characterization. He's going to heap up this expansion upon their personalities as they are displayed. He's going to show in the fullest measure the personality traits which characterize these intruders who are disturbing the peace of this Christian community. All right, now how does he do it? How does he do it? What is the literary style of this language in verses 12 and 13? Descriptive. It is descriptive. What kind of descriptive letter, literary style is he using? Enumeration. Pardon? Enumeration. Enumeration. <clears throat> Anything else? It is metaphors. Yes, it is metaphors. You'll notice in verse 10, he actually used simile. <clears throat> like unreasoning animals. That's a simile. Comparing something like unto something else. But here he does not use simile. He's using metaphor as his rhetorical or literary device in order to expand or explain their personality. And what does he use to do that? 
nature. Yes, he uses images from nature. He's using metaphorical nature images. All right, now let's think for a moment about the pattern of those metaphors, the pattern of those images from the natural world. What do you notice about them? Or do you notice anything about them? You said they're just they're right there on the page. That's what they are. Earth and earth and sky. Earth and sky. Still natural. Yes. Do you want to add anything to that? Does he add anything to that? Art. Well, they're uh, things from nature who are not doing what they're supposed to. Mm, well, okay, uh, but uh, Pam started us with stop heights, okay, earth and sky. <clears throat> kind of wild. I mean, like... What, what is wild? Well, I mean, like, the sky and then... The what did he say is wild? Pictures. Raging. Raging what? Waves. Of the what? Sea. Oh, the sea. So we've got earth and sky and sea, don't we? Okay, all right. So we've got basically three elements, which would be very common to someone living along a coastal plain or along a region that borders a coastal plain. Sea, land, air, ocean, sky, and earth. This is a comprehensive attempt at describing their character in images which in and of themselves are a comprehensive survey of the natural world. All right, now how does he arrange them? <clears throat> he begins with the hidden reefs of the sea, doesn't he? Then he talks about the clouds of the sky. He moves on to the trees of the ground. And then he uses the waves of the sea or ocean, concluding with the stars of the sky. Sea, sky, ground or earth, sea, and sky again. Now, it would be very nice... <clears throat> if he had gone back to the sky in the fourth instance and ended up with the waves of the sea, and then we could say, <clears throat> perfect chiasm. <laughs> but he doesn't. So I can't make a chiasm out of what is not there, but I do note the uh, parallel use of at least two images here. The one he does not duplicate is the ground or the earth. <clears throat> I'll leave it at that. I don't have any suggestions beyond uh, why he does it this way. <clears throat> but in any event, we notice how he uses nature here for the purpose of metaphorical characterization. All right, now verse 12 begins. <clears throat> begins with what? These. Yes? What, 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 what is he focusing on? He begins that 12 verse. We're back on the interlopers. It's a setting. What is he focusing on? What setting is he focusing on? Love the love feast. What is a love feast? <laughs> All right. Now, 
the love feast is not peculiar to the Christian community. It is a place where you would least expect to discover a cloaked, hidden agenda. Why? Because it was a common banquet occasion in the ancient world. In ancient culture, a banquet or a feast was a place you gathered to share friendship, not to be manipulated by a hidden agenda. It was a place where you came to share a meal expressing confidence and trust in those with whom you were eating, not suspicious of somebody attempting to manipulate or dominate you. It was a place in which the warmth and the joy of the occasion, sitting at table together, was expressive of the bond that dominated that atmosphere and arena. Now, this is obviously the object which the intruders are attacking. They are using this occasion in which one would not be looking for a secret agenda, a under-the-table manipulation. They are using it in order to do just that. They are using it in order to dominate, manipulate, and promote their hidden agenda. Well, what precisely are they doing? Here, they are pretentious. They are pretentious at the love feast. Now, what does the word pretentious mean? Make believe. Make believe. Any other suggestion? Comes from the word? Pretend. Pretend, correct? All right. So they are pretending. They are make-believing that they are something other than they really are. Reminds us of some feasts or banquets in the Old Testament. Or at least it should put us in mind of some of those feasts. For instance, Absalom's feast. Absalom's feast with the sheep shearers. To whom did Absalom invite, or whom did Absalom invite to that feast? And why was he sponsoring a sheep shearing festival or feast and banquet? Absalom. Absalom. He's inviting Amnon. Why is he inviting Amnon? To kill him. Is that pretentious? Did Absalom have a hidden agenda? Why did he have a hidden agenda? Why doesn't he like Amnon? He to take revenge because Amnon had... had uh, He's taking revenge for what, Ben? For his sister. Um, for his sister. What's her name? Yeah, I forget her name. Anybody? Tamar. Tamar, yes. Taking revenge for Tamar. What did Amnon do to her? He raped her. And Absalom says... I will deal with Amnon. It took him two years, 
But he finally hatched his scheme. He had the right occasion, namely that sheep-shearing festival, and he invited even David to that festival. David had another engagement. Well, not really. He begged off. That, of course, was probably even more to Absalom's purpose. But the pretense of Absalom is right out front for those of us who read the narrative, though Amnon did not know what was coming. All right, now there's another pretentious festival in the David narrative, and that involves the banquet of Adonijah. Incidentally, you'll find the story of Absalom's death, Amnon's death, rather, Absalom's feast and Amnon's death in 2 Samuel 13. What about the feast of Adonijah? And what was pretentious about it? Who is Adonijah? Ben? I thought, I thought I heard somebody say it. No. Son of David. Son of David. All right. He is the son of David. And, Kay, what were you going to say? I was going to say son of David who wanted to be king instead of Solomon. Very good. I'm glad I called on you, Kay. You said more than, than uh, what, what our previous speaker had said, which is what I wanted to get after anyway. <laughs> All right. So, Adonijah wants to be king instead of whom, Kay? Instead of Solomon. So why does he why does he have this dinner? Why does he invite everybody to this feast? He's already paraded through the streets of Jerusalem with his chariots, hasn't he? He's already ridden through the streets, gathering up support. Just like Absalom did. You remember when Absalom rode through the streets with his chariots? He'd come into town with 50 charioteers. And then he'd go to the gate and he'd say, well, the king doesn't really care about you. I do. If you elect me, you know. We don't don't know politicians like that today, do we? I mean, all our politicians tell the absolute truth and nothing but the truth. They're not habitual liars, are they? All right. All right. So, Adonijah is following in the train or in the same <clears throat> the same M.O. as Absalom, who was, of course, killed for his troubles. And Adonijah is going to try the same game, only he thinks that because his father is old and decrepit and can't even keep himself warm in his own bed, that he's fair game. So he rallies his supporters by appointing a feast in which they proclaim him king. And the shout of that celebration is carried to David's palace. And David says, well, I'm not so old and decrepit or cold that I can't act. And he does. All right, so... Adonijah also has a pretentious feast. It is a feast with a hidden agenda. It is his stepping stone to the throne of his father, David. 
It is his stepping stone to unseat Solomon and to make himself the heir apparent to his father's royal chair. But the most nefarious of all the pretentious banquets in the Bible is what? Which one would you pick? Last Supper. I wouldn't even pick that one. That one's bad enough, but I wouldn't even, I would pick one worse than that. Now, this is my personal opinion. You might be right in the long and short of it, Robert, but you have to think like me. It was my personal pick. Sorry to be so manipulative. <laughs> Maybe along with Haman and Mordecai? Haman and Mordecai? Mm. I thought about that one, but I think there's one worse. Pardon? Belshazzar's feast? No, there's one worse than that. You hear anything that John the Baptist? No, there's one worse than that. What about David and... No, Scott... I was going to take something that really wasn't a feast. It's the cutting up of the, the, uh, of the prostitute. The Levite's concubine? Yeah, that's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I hadn't thought about that one. You know, you, you, you're pressing me. <laughs> Naboth's vineyard. Naboth's vineyard. Yes. Jezebel and who else? What's his name? Ahab and Jezebel. Now the reason it's so nefarious is that Jezebel sets him up. She sets Naboth up to be murdered in public by vile false accusation. Planting men of Belial at the banquet table while Naboth unsuspecting is thinking he's being featured as man of the year. You see, in the royal palace, in Jezreel, next door to which is his lovely vineyard, which belongs to him by right of patrimony. It's been passed down to him from father to son, from father to son for generations, and he won't sell it to Ahab because it's a family treasure. It belonged to my dad and his dad before him. Why should I give up my vineyard? And pouty old Ahab says, because I want it. I want my maple. And Ahab even goes in, goes in and lies on his bed and he won't eat his supper. And Jezebel comes in and says, poor baby, what? poor baby, why won't you eat your dinner? Why have you lost your appetite? You're not on a diet. And Ahab says, Naboth won't give me his vineyard. I offered him a fair price, he won't give me his vineyard. And Jezebel pats her beloved on the head and he says, no, she said, now don't you worry, dear Ahab, baby. I'm going to get that vineyard for you. So you come to dinner too. And I'll show you how we deal with recalcitrant people who won't sell the king their vineyard when the king wants it. Because after all, what Jezebel wants, Jezebel gets. Because what Ahab wants, Ahab gets. They make songs about women like this. All right. That is in 1 Kings 21. 
It is the unveiled murderous greed of this woman and her husband and the untrammeled quashing bloodthirsty murder of an innocent man by planting liars in a banquet and proceeding to drag him out and kill him. Now, I don't minimize the Last Supper in terms of its deceit, but the majority of that banquet hall in that upper room was not plotting to murder Jesus. That banquet hall in Jezreel belonged to Jezebel. And what she did was visited on her own head, as the prophet said, in the place where they licked up, the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth. There will the dog lick up the blood of Jezebel. All right, now, uh, the dinner that Esther put out for Haman, that was mentioned, Belshazzar's feast was mentioned. These are all other uh, obvious candidates for pretentious banquets in the Bible, and I'm sure we haven't exhausted them all, but nonetheless, <clears throat> here are suggestions of the exam- the kind of thing that is happening in these love feasts in the community to which Jude is writing. There is nothing new under the sun, and consequently, we see antecedents of the very kind of thing that's going on here, where people use <clears throat> a banquet festival occasion to promote a hidden agenda. And they do so by caring for themselves, as he says in that verse. Caring for themselves. I want to come back to that phrase in a moment, but here I simply want to underscore the fact that all pretense is selfish. All pretend appearance is selfish appearance. Here in these love feasts, love was to be the object. The warmth of love, bond, and affection amongst friends. It is a pretense. These subverters of the love feast are only in love with themselves. They are self-centered lovers of themselves. The most important persons in their world are themselves. They are egocentric self-lovers. Their friendship is a pretense. They feed themselves with self-promotion. They only appear in these love feasts in order to make themselves poster boys for the community. Their warmth and glad-handing and back-scratching is a pretense. It is only a subtle means of controlling others for themselves. Self-control. No, not the control of themselves, but control of others for themselves. And they do so without fear. Now, what does Jude mean by without fear? Without fear of who or what? Without fear of contradiction, 
Not sure about that. Without fear of what or whom? God. You might say God. Okay? And, as we note, they are described in verse 4. How? Something more in that verse I want you to see. Something more. What did we just say? They do not fear God. What do you see in verse 4? They are ungodly. What do you see in verse 15? They are ungodly. Okay, all right. So it is possible that when he says they do not, they are without fear, that he is alluding to the fact that their character is they do not, they are ungodly. That is possible. I'm going to suggest that they fear no scruples. No scruples. It is not that they do not fear God. It's that they are unscrupulous. They don't fear any consequences. They do not fear the results of their manipulation. They do not fear taking advantage of others. Notice verse 16. He specifically points out that that is one of the things that drives them. They have no scruples about taking advantage of others. They don't fear the consequences of taking advantage of others. They use others for themselves. They have no scruples against using others out of self-interest, out of self-promotion, out of self-dominance. That is, dominating others for the sake of themselves. Take the case of theological pretense. Theological pretense. Pretending to be a theological friend so as to gain a position or employment in the church. Working alongside a theologian of some prominence, so as to secure a place in the church, only to betray that trust and that theology after they have gained the position they sought. The case of theological pretense this is, the pre- this is the pretense of theological ambition, feigning conformity to one agenda while in fact subverting it by the hidden agenda of self-promotion, scheming self-promotion in the church for the sake of personal ambition. Take the case of theological pretense. And don't kid yourself. It is alive and well on planet Earth. Or take the case of the man pretending to be a pastor-like friend so as to gain power over persons in the church or in the Christian community at large. He was a professor at a reformed theological seminary. Yes, he was a professor in a Reformed theological seminary. And in counseling with women who sought his advice, he engaged in inappropriate sexual behavior with them. He used his friendly counseling role 
to gain sexual power over trusting, unsuspecting women. As with the theological acolyte, in the case of theological pretense, this man used others. Used other human beings. Used others to advance his own hidden agenda. Selfish, salacious, self-centered, self-interested, self-satisfied dominance. Pretense, alive and well, even in the Reformed world. Now, Jude uses the first illustration or metaphor in that 12th verse, the hidden reeves. A reef, of course, is below the surface of the water, and the water above the reef looks perfectly normal. It does not appear that there is any danger in the water above that reef. In other words, the hidden reef makes the water appear not as it really is. These intruders are appearing not like they really are. Like the water above the reef, these are smoothies. They move through the Christian community smooth as silk. They'll glad hand you and backhand you and backslap you, and they'll even give you a great hug. But they are pretentious. They are not what they appear to be. They look as if they're placid, calm, cool, and collected. But below the surface, they are like treacherous reefs, poised to reach up and dash out the bowels of a ship and splinter it into destruction. The intruders entering these love feasts are like hidden reefs. Above the surface, calm, cool, and collected. Below the surface, treacherous, treacherous, destructive, and dangerous. They will drown all hope in sorrow, turmoil, and even in death. Such was the case with the ruling elder of a Reformed church who appeared on the surface to be smooth, orthodox, even placid. But in fact, he was never what he appeared to be. Never what he appeared to be. Below the surface was a seething cauldron of evil and hypocrisy. A phony charade of dependency. Pretentious dependency. All of which cloaked a soul of apostasy as it was clearly revealed 
when the reefs were hidden no more. And he declared publicly that he was an apostate. Pretense. Pretending to be what you are not. Appearing to be what in truth you are not. This is what Jude is featuring in this section of his letter. Now, I promised that I would come back to that phrase, they care for themselves. The interesting thing about this phrase is not only does it focus upon the selfishness of these apostates, but the word that he uses here in the Greek literally means shepherding themselves. Shepherding themselves. Now, there's an oxymoron if there ever was one. A shepherd doesn't shepherd himself. A shepherd shepherds others. A shepherd is not on the field or in the pasture for himself, as if he's standing out alone in the field. A shepherd is there to guard and protect the flock. These apostates aren't guarding or protecting the flock. These apostates are wolves. These apostates are, in fact, intruding into the flock in order to destroy it, not to guard it, not to keep it, not to lead it to greener pastures. The shepherding of these intruders is a shepherding which promotes them. They do not care for the sheep at all. They're even worse than hirelings because they've been accepted into the community by their pretentious appearance. And so they have come from the beginning with an agenda to deceive, to infiltrate, to subvert, and to undermine the community. All right, now that brings us to the second metaphor that Jude uses here. And that's the phrase, clouds without water. But I want you to notice that he uses a binary pattern here. This once again underscores the Semitic background of the author, consistent with Jude's upbringing. He would know the Old Testament well, particularly the Psalms. He would understand Hebrew poetry, particularly at that level in which we in previous studies have pointed out that Hebrew poetry has this binary character. What is A and what is more than A, namely B. The binary character here in these verses is the twofold phrases that support the same metaphor. Clouds without water has a second or a binary phrase which supports it or expands it, namely blown by the wind. This is a binary symmetry. It's an expanded symmetrical pattern. It is 
typical of Old Testament poetic idiom, and it cements, as I indicated, the Semitic background of the author of this letter, whom we have argued is the brother of Jesus, namely Jude of Nazareth in Galilee. All right, now, clouds without water is consistent in one sense with hidden reefs. How is that consistency expanded here with the air, the clouds of the air? What is he driving at in general with hidden reefs, clouds without water? They look normal. They look normal. Okay, what else? They're worthless. They're worthless. Why? They don't water the ground. They don't water the ground. All right, so they are not what they appear to be. This is certainly not from a climate that belongs to the Pacific Northwest, right? When our clouds come along, we get more water than we want. Okay, all right. We want to flash back to that uh, uh, image in a moment. But nonetheless, it is this false appearances. They are not what they seem. The hidden reef is not what it seems. Cloud without water is not what it seems. It seems that it should be bringing rain and it brings nothing. It does not deliver what it appears to carry. But then he adds, blown by the wind. What's the nuance here? What's he adding here? Yes? They'll move on without being productive. They'll move on without being productive, all right. So they'll just pass you by. Anything else? I think it'll puffed up. They're puffed up. That could be. They're pufferbilly clouds. They're directionless. They're directionless. That's good. Okay. They'll go whichever way the wind blows. What else? Is it judgment? I mean, all these other ones are kind of judgment. They're vacuous. They're vacuous. Meaning they're empty, which is one of the reasons they get blown by the wind. There's nothing in them. They're wind-blown. And they drop nothing. All right, now, I want to return to this image with respect to that question about Palestine. But I'll let you think about that over the break because you need something to fortify you for the discussion of why I've got a question mark before Palestine. All right, now, you've got that little uh, shot of sugar or caffeine or whatever it is that uh, you like. It'll kickstart your brain on this uh, question of why I put a question mark for Palestine there. What about that? Why do you think I did that? Yes, Robert. It would seem to me that in Palestine they don't get a whole lot of clouds or rain. So 
anytime they see a cloud, they would welcome it. Right? And if it turns out to be a, what is this, a cloud with no water, uh, kind of disappointing. Good. Uh, you're on the right track. Uh, in fact, the climate in Palestine is very similar to the climate where? In the United States. Mrs. Dennison? I'm sorry, I was thinking about something else. <laughs> well, I'll have to call on somebody else. Did somebody else have a suggestion? Death Valley. Death Valley, actually the coast of San Diego. Southern California. And the San Diego coast, Cuyamunga Range, which is the mountain range east of San Diego proper, and then the Borrego Desert. Now, in that climate, the usual weather forecast for nine or ten months out of the year is what, Scott? No rain. Night and morning? Uh, no clouds. Night and morning, low clouds. Low clouds. Yes, the clouds come in about four o'clock and cool off the uh, coastal strip and also some of the inland. And then they uh, remain until the morning, <clears throat> until the sun rises, and then the sun burns them off. But they never drop any rain. <clears throat> they're <clears throat> thick cloud layers. Uh, they're not <clears throat> necessarily billowy clouds. It's, it's like, you know, the gray that we experience without a whole lot of clouds here in the Northwest. But nonetheless, it's routine. It goes on for, as I said, nine or ten months. They do have a rainy season <clears throat> from December to February. But uh, nonetheless, this usual pattern of sunny Southern California <clears throat> is not without this kind of cooling uh, <clears throat> dimension in the afternoon, <clears throat> and it stays cool at nights, very comfortable to sleep in that region uh, for the most part, uh, <clears throat> even in the summer uh, when it can be 80, 90 degrees during the day, it'll cool down at night because of these <clears throat> offshore clouds that start to come in. <clears throat> That's the style of the climate in Palestine. Now, the Mediterranean coast does the same thing as the Pacific Ocean does. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> uh, there's, there is a rainy season in Palestine, very much like the rainy season in uh, Southern California. <clears throat> and those clouds uh, build up against the hills in central Palestine called the the, the, they call them mountains. They're not really mountains. Well, for those of us from Pennsylvania, the mountains are 3,000 feet high. That is until you see the Rockies and then you realize those aren't mountains back there. The Appalachians aren't mountains. They're just hills. <laughs> so, so the highest, the highest hills in the central region of Palestine are 2,500 to 2,800 feet. That's not a mountain by Northwest standards or by Colorado standards or by Wyoming or Montana standards or Banff or, or, uh, or uh, uh, what's that other one up there, uh, Jasper or Banff or whatever, those glorious Canadian Rockies. Wow, they are, they are tremendous. Okay, all right, well, we, we do have this coastal plain in Palestine, and the clouds hover over there, and they're pushed up against the hills as you're going up towards Jerusalem. And uh, they do 
drop the dew. That is, they, they will drop the morning dew, but they won't drop anything else, or they'll cool the, cool the air down so that the dew will form. But they don't drop anything else, and it's consistent. In other words, they, they move, some that are blown around, uh, <clears throat> so they wander around, uh, you know, like errant, uh, uh, like, like little errant uh, uh, lambs of, of bouncing around the sky. But they don't drop any. They don't deliver any goods. And it's it's an ongoing pattern. So one of the reasons I'm suggesting that Jude uses this is because he was used to it. He understood that weather pattern. These clouds that have no rain. They are there promising moisture. They do not deliver any moisture. Now, why am I uh, uh, waxing on about this? Because I think it supports the issue of the provenance of this epistle. Now, you remember we talked about provenance when we began this study. And provenance means origin. From what region did this epistle originate? And our argument was that it is actually from a Palestinian Judaistic background and is directed to a Palestinian Judaistic community. In other words, he's using an image that they're familiar with. He's using an image that would resonate with them. Clouds without water. Just like you know, clouds coming in off the Mediterranean, bearing no water, particularly in the non-rainy season, in the dry season, bunching up against the hills just on the west side of Jerusalem, but not delivering any moisture. And it cements that... Uh, location or that origin of this epistle consistent with Jude's own uh, uh, growing up in that area. So uh, not only is the symmetry here of these metaphors Semitic, that is it suggests a, a Hebrew background for the writer, but also this particular image suggests a Palestinian background for the writer And when I say Palestinian, I mean Palestinian in the Israeli sense of the first century A.D. All right, now that that may not interest you particularly, but I think it's a a nice little suggestion that indeed uh, this comes from somebody who was familiar with Palestinian geography and weather patterns. Yes, go ahead, Pat. Weren't they basically an agricultural society? So most of the people there that he was talking to wouldn't they have been agriculturally knowing about the stars and the, and the rains and first and latter rains. Yes, that's very good. That is correct. The majority of them were agricultural or commercial. So they were tradesmen, merchants, that type of thing. But the agricultural climate, of course, would put them out into nature uh, where they would perceive this more particularly. Any other observations or comments? All right, now, the next metaphor at the end of verse 12 is autumn trees without fruit. Now, you notice he also expands the symmetry of this one with the word in the New American Standard, uprooted. Now, uprooted means what? Displaced. Displaced? Okay. What else? Pulled up. Pulled up. What else? Without 
water without sustenance. Without without root, without sustenance. Without you're on the right track, without life. Without life. Without life. They are dead. Right now that helps you understand the twice dead uh, phrase there. But uh, let's begin with autumn trees. Why does it say autumn trees? That's when they should bear fruit. That's when they should bear fruit, particularly in Palestinian climate. Because the great harvest season of the Palestinian climate was the autumn season. When they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles and they had the great ingathering, it was the Jewish Thanksgiving. We're going to have Thanksgiving in America next week. The Jewish Thanksgiving was in October during the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when all the summer fruits were expected and gathered into the garner. All right, so this, once again, is an image which supports this Palestinian provenance of this letter. Okay, so autumn trees, you're waiting all spring. They've bloomed. They begin to flower, okay? They're beginning to produce fruit through the summer. And you're waiting in the autumn for the product, for the fruit that you expect. And what do you get? You get no fruit. They are sterile. These are fruitless trees. They're trees without any product. Why does he say then twice dead? Can't give life to you. Twice dead. First of all, no fruit. No fruit. Second of all, no root. No root. <laughs> There's a good gardener out there. <laughs> no fruit, no root. <laughs> They're fruitless. Okay. They're dead with respect to the fruit on the vine, and they're dead with respect to being uprooted. They have no root in the ground. They have no vitality. Yes. I, the reason I said they don't have any fruit is I'm wondering if this they can't give life either. In other words, does it follow up that that selfish metaphor where they're they're not giving to others? I don't know. Yeah, fine. Yeah, then they're self-centered. They're not extroverted, so they say they're not distributing uh, their their uh, generosity. So they, they they're, they're, I like the word sterile. Seems that they're impossible for them to give it. They have nothing. They have no fruit to share. All right, verse 13. Wild waves of the sea. Now he expands the symmetry with the second phrase. Casting up their own shame like foam. In the days when my wife and I had a motorhome, we were coming back from California one December and we went down for Christmas, and we came up along the Oregon coast. And we pulled into a campground in a raging storm one night. And when we got up in the morning, we decided we'd go out to take a walk on the beach. And when we got to the beach, we couldn't walk on the beach. Because it was three feet or more deep in foam. It was absolutely amazing. If you had walked out into that foam, you would have been stuck with muck and moisture and everything else 
It was an amazing sight to behold because that ocean had thrashed that beach all night long and had cast up piles of foam. It was still there in the morning. And the sun was bright and shining on that morning when we walked out there. At first, we'd never seen anything like it in our life. It was absolutely stunning. Not only did we miss our meat our walk on the beach, but <laughs> here was this barrier. <laughs> All right, it's that kind of thing that uh, Jude is describing here. The thrashing, roiling, heaving, surging, uncontrollable rage of the ocean. I mean, if you sat beside the Atlantic or the Pacific, and you watch the ocean rage, you watch it thrash and beat the shore and dash itself against the cliffs, and those waves 20, 30, sometimes 40 feet high, just crashing upon the, the uh, sand or upon the rocks, is a phenomenal thing to see. It's just tremendous power and energy, but here... <clears throat> Jude sees that energy and power in terms of the rage underneath the surface hidden within these intruders, within these apostates. They are wild. They are uncontrollable. They are surging, raging, passioned against the very gospel that Jude is proclaiming, the very gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Notice once again, verse 4, as we pointed out again, they oppose the grace of God and our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now the second part of this metaphor is casting up shame like the foam on the shore. Like the foam which bears the scum of the ocean in it, like the foam that is filled with the flotsam and jetsam, which is dredged up as it boils out from the waves thrashing against the shoreline and against the cliffs. This image is a reflection on the shameful acts or the shameful deeds of these intruders, which course, cloak the shameful attitudes which lie within their disposition and personality. Remember in verse 4, once again, they have been described as licentious. These shameful acts and shameful deeds include their aberrant and uh, unnatural sexual practices, and consequently, uh, that is likened to the scum of the foam upon the seashore. Now, the final image is the wandering stars. The symmetry here is reserved for black darkness. Now, as you think about that second part of this line, black darkness, where is the star destined? In this line, where is it destined? Hell. Hell. Hell? Mm -hmm. That would be true of moral beings. 
Okay? The star itself is not a moral object. Burnout? Nothing? Is it conceivable? Is it conceivable that he's thinking here of what we call a black hole? That the star disappears into a black hole. Well, whether that be true or not, certainly the image expresses itself in the lostness, the disappearance, the being swallowed up in inky blackness. Notice the wandering aspect. The the word for star here is a Greek word from which we get planet. And up above in verse 11, the word for error, the error of Balaam, is very close to this word planet, come from the same lemma or root in the Greek plane. Is Jude playing upon the error of Balaam or punning on it when he's talking about these wandering or erroring stars? Stars that are erroring, wandering from their orbits, straying, straying from the truth as Balaam himself was. I'm not certain about that. I observe the correspondence in the uh, Greek roots. So I throw out the suggestion, something worth thinking about. But what we do know is that in these wandering stars, they are straying from their proper place. That should remind us of what previously in this letter? The angels, angels, very good, in verse 6, who did not keep their proper place. And in straying from it, they were kept in eternal bonds where, Margie? Verse 6, you're right, but verse 6, look at verse 6, in verse 6, In darkness, yes. Here is the very same word appearing once again in verse 13. In the darkness, which reminds us of the angels who had been consigned to eternal darkness, a darkness visible. Remember Milton's line, a darkness visible. All right, so these intruders are now being characterized once again here in terms of nature imagery even as they were characterized in terms of the Old Testament illustrations. The illustrations of the angels who fell from their proper place. These intruders wander and stray from their proper place. Their proper place is to be under the grace of Christ. They stray from the grace of Christ. Their proper place is to be under the lordship and mastery of Jesus Christ. They stray from their proper place. Their proper place is to follow the order of creation and the order of nature. They stray from their proper place. They pervert the order of creation. They pervert the order of nature. They are particularly sexual, sexually perverse.
Black darkness has been reserved for them forever. And that is the hellish judgment which is threatened against them and promised to them if they do not repent, if they do not forget and give up their hidden agenda, if they do not uh, measure up to what they appear to be and, in fact, live in accordance with the grace of God and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one more section in which we will observe the character of these individuals, a section which will be signaled by another uh, reflection on an Old Testament individual, namely Enoch. But we leave these intruders with a fairly complete personality profile. Had you met them in these congregations, you would have never guessed what was under the surface, not until it came to the top. Jude is aware of what is going to come to the top. Jude is aware of what is under the surface. Jude understands very well the hidden agenda that drives these individuals. Will this congregation listen? He has even used the prophetic voice. Woe to them in verse 11. He has claimed the role and the mantle of an Old Testament prophet, even as his brother Lord did. Will the community listen? Or will the community be charmed, manipulated, and deceived by these false pretenders? It was a challenge of that early Christian community. We do not know the outcome of his appeals to this community or to several communities perhaps throughout the Palestinian-Syrian region. But we are reminded, we are reminded that the church is in fact fertile territory for dominators, manipulators, and poster boy pretenders. Primary territory, because it is a territory where people are least suspecting, least on their guard, least aware of how they may be in the vernacular jerked around by a hidden agenda. We are not going to be living in the days ahead in an era in the history of the American church where we will have the luxury of not thinking this way. We are on the very cusp of it in our whole culture. We are are seeing this type of subterfuge boil to the surface routinely now in every area of our American culture, whether it is sports, whether it is in education, whether it is in government offices, whether it is in the highest positions of power in the church, we are seeing it boil to the surface in the media, in the entertainment world. We are awash with it. People who look as if they are squeaky clean, smooth and above board, who are literally seething, boiling pots of hypocrisy, evil and deception. 
if the church will permit such individuals to dominate itself, if the pew will allow such individuals to dominate the pulpit, then the pew will receive exactly what Jude is saying will result if these people are not exposed and excommunicated. The church has come through an era which was called the church growth era in which congregations were manipulated and dominated by individuals who were snake oil salesmen. Charmers who called themselves by their own description ranchers of the flock, not shepherds of the flock. They called themselves in their own literature, we are ranchers, we are managers, we are corporate officers, we direct the corporation, the church is a business, we run it like a business. That is the end of the church. That is the end of the church according to the New Testament. Because that is putting people in position who are dominators, controllers. They are control freaks. They are brazen control freaks. And they will ruthlessly run over you and suppress you if you cross them. We are now on the cusp of the maturing of the church growth movement into its next morphed, so shall we say, phase. That's called the emergent church. I don't know how many friends I have who have been on the edge of the emergent church movement who have said that it is, in fact, a concentration camp. It is a form of tyranny. Because it's run by people who are absolutely awash in the lust for power. Money, prestige, and power. Do not think that it cannot come to the reformed movement. After all, In the 80s and 90s, we lived through the church growth movement in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. In 1989, it left for greener pastors in the PCA. The power boys decided the OP was not the place where power in the future lay. And so they took their marbles and went off to another denomination where the power boys were welcome. Are we now seeing the vacuum being filled? I wonder. I wonder. Well, heaven's claim upon us, heaven's claim upon us in Christ Jesus is to reflect the character of our Father in heaven. The grace of his dear Son, our Savior, by the transforming breath, of the Holy Spirit. There is no pretense. There is no pretense at that heavenly banquet table. There is no pretense at that heavenly love feast where the love of God binds the guests. 
to one another. The love of God binds them to one another. Not their social status, not their political power, not their vaunted wealth, not their position in the church, but love binds them to one another. There is no hidden agenda in the presence of the great shepherd of the sheep before whom every thought and desire and feeling is open and plain. He shepherds his flock. He shepherds his lamb. You love him because he shepherds you and calls you his sheep, his little lamb. There is no self-promotion nor any self-centeredness in that glorious heavenly place. There can't be. It's impossible. Because Christ is the center. Christ Jesus is all in all in that place. And there can be no selfishness in that place where he is central. There is no self-promotion, nor is there any emptiness in heaven. No wind-blown false appearances. Rather, that heavenly place is a place drenched, drenched with the early and latter rain of God's free Gracious favor, a place where God himself will be as the morning dew upon his people. Thank you, Hosea, the prophet. Here is the fruit of the tree of life. Here in that place, the branches grafted into the living vine. Verdant branches, vital branches, twice born branches, yea, twice born branches. They flourish in that heavenly garden. The waves of the sea of heaven are crystal. A sea of crystal, placid, Pacific, smooth as glass, pure, clean, unbesmirched glass, glass which glows, glows with the glory of the Lord. Nor does any in that place, that celestial city, nor does any stray from the path of light. Turning aside to the pit of darkness, nor does any. Rather, everyone, each one, walks as a son and daughter of the light of the world. A child of the light of eternity. A beloved sinner 
transformed out of darkness into the light of the world to come. Through Jude's elder brother, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be the glory of that place and unto us forever and ever. Amen. And again, I say, Amen. The obverse of this characterization is your legacy. It is your bequest. It is your gift to be what you appear to be in Christ out of the arena of heaven and to walk in this world as the children of light. Heaven's light to walk that way with no dark, hidden, pretentious agendas. For in Christ you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear. Christ took you filthy, sinful, stained, besmirched. Christ took you as you are and he made you new. You have nothing to fear. Nor from anyone else who by Christ has been taken filthy, dirty, besmirched, and made clean. You have nothing to fear from such a person who is a servant as Jesus was a servant. He came not to lord it over. He came to serve and to give his life. You have been called to be servants, not dominators or manipulators. You are the obverse of Jude 12 and 13. I encourage you to go forth and live that way to the glory of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of heaven. Shall we pray? Lord, we grieve at the analysis which is here for we see too much of it in our own world. We even see it in the church to our grief. We plead with you, O Lord, to break the stubborn hearts with contrition, to turn those who are stuck on themselves with hidden agendas unto the Lord Jesus that they may be true servants and not lords like the Gentiles. We pray, O Lord, that we may walk in such humility with our Lord, with such joy that he has loved us so much to invite us to his own heavenly love feast and that he has been everything genuine and open to us that he may make us genuine and open to himself and to one another in the bonds of faith. Now we pray, O Lord, that you will protect your church in these days against the manipulators 
the dominators, the pretenders, and those who use others to gain their own advantage. Lord, please deliver your church for the sake of the glory of Christ, the honor of your own name, and the breath of the Spirit to renew, revive, and extend the kingdom of God in this world until Jesus comes. We pray this with all humility and sincerity in Jesus' name, believing that you will hear us and answer. Amen. Happy Thanksgiving to you all.